We get to talk about fear today, I'm so glad, but also I've been so scared all week. <laughs> Come on, work with me, but I'm bum people. And on that note, we'll say a prayer. God, we pray for this time today. We pray that we would all walk out of here ready to be people without fear who live courageously in the name of Christ in a world that can be really scary. And we know that that kind of courage can only come through the power of Christ. And so we're asking for that today and we're asking for your presence and we're asking for your words and we're asking for your peace that passes understanding as we talk about difficult things. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So on July 2nd of last year, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, I found a lump. July 2nd was a Saturday, and Saturday there's no doctors available, and then Sunday there's no doctors available, and then imagine this, on Monday, July 4th, also no doctors available. So I went through three days of sheer terror um, thinking that I was going to die. And actually, one of my thoughts was, I hope I make it until November when my daughter is getting married. So I, there's no diagnosis. There's no anything. I'm just thinking that I only have four months to live, and I hope I make it that long. <laughs> On July 6th, I had a mammogram, and then they said, oh, we need to do an ultrasound. And then after that, they said, well, we're going to need to do a biopsy. And then I literally, by that time, was shaking uncontrollably from head to foot because I had never faced my own mortality up close like this. And it turned out, I found out two days later that it was cancer. And so then, of course, you have to keep going to the doctor. Who the, now they're always there. I couldn't find them when I needed them, but now I can't get away from them. And then surgery. And for a crappy situation, I feel pretty grateful for my situation. But following the surgery in August, they gave me a piece of paper and they pick apart the tumor and tell you more than you want to know about it. And the important thing is a number in the upper right-hand corner. And this number tells you the likelihood of the cancer returning in the next 10 years. And my number was nine. And I thought, well, I'm probably going to die soon then. This is the theme. Um, I did make it to the wedding, by the way. So that was good. But, and I'm here. <laughs> Um, so the nine said that if I follow the treatment plan, then I have this, this chance of the cancer returning. When the kind of breast cancer I have and the, after the treatment I had comes back, it's not really treatable. So it's a pretty serious deal if it comes back. But this was supposed to be good news. I was told they're all like, yay, nine. And I'm like, how? The nine is not good. Nine is like I have a one in 10 chance of dying in a minute is what it felt like. Um, so I went to the oncologist and I said, I don't feel good about this nine, let's talk about the nine. And he said, Sandra, the nine is a good number. I mean, you have a one in six chance of dying of heart disease. Okay, how is that helpful? So I, now I have two things to be fearful about. What else, any other things I might die of that you'd like to mention today? Um, so now I have a, a myriad of things that I might die of. Um, and so I have had fear um, off and on since then. So when we talk about fear today, I'm talking about it from a very personal place. And I know that a lot of you here, and maybe possibly all of you here, either have recently or are living in a place of fear about a variety of things. I want to talk first, define terms about what we mean by fear. I'm going to talk about two different kinds. The first one is personal fear, which is the story that I just told. My cancer is going to come back. 
I'm going to fail at my job. My child's going to get in a car wreck. My brother's never going to break his addiction. We're going to run out of money. My partner's going to leave me. And we could go on and on. I'm sure you each could raise your hand and say, here's one. And we wouldn't even duplicate throughout this auditorium because there are so many things to be fearful of. So personal fear is one kind. But then we're going to talk about global fear. And global fear is the world is coming to an end. All of the immigrants are terrorists. None of us are safe, which is a very common fear in our world today. Regardless of what kind of fear, the Bible has something to say about it. And it actually has a lot to say about it because in the Bible, Old and New Testament, there are 365 do not fears. Now, I didn't count them myself. I went on something called the internet and I heard from a lot of people that 365 times do not fear. So let's take a look at a couple of those. First from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. 1 John 4, 18-19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. So I want to tell you a little story about how a lack of love can lead to fear. And we have to go back just a couple of years till when I was a young driver, 16 or 17 years old, and I was driving my dad's Ford station wagon circa 1978. It had fake wood panel doors. You can picture, I know you're jealous, I know you are. I have to say, it wasn't the coolest car in the parking lot at school. <laughs> so I'm driving this car, and I'm getting home late at night, and everybody's asleep, and I have the radio just blaring really, really loud. I'm sure it was worship music, but it was really, really loud. And I went to pull in our garage, and it was a sharp turn, and there was another car in the garage, and I didn't realize, because I had this music blasting, that the rear panel, the rear door on the passenger side had kind of bumped up against the bumper of the other car in the garage. And as I pulled in, I put this nice crease right down that wood sticker. And so I had fear because my dad had no love for anyone who messed with his cars, especially stupidly. There would not be any, everyone makes mistakes, I love you, I think paying for these repairs will help you be more careful next time. No, there was not. Just anger and shame and punishment and that was the result. And some of us see God in this way. Some of us live like we are constantly denting the rear passenger door on God's station wagon, right? And we're always waiting for anger and we have fear about it and we're waiting for punishment. And in order to receive God's perfect love, we can't live in that fear. We have to see God differently than that. God is more interested in you than the rear passenger door of his station wagon. I want to talk about what living in fear does to us, but first I want to say a word here about responding to different kinds of fear. So we talked about personal fear. So what do we do when ourselves or people around us are having fear about medical problems, money problems, whatever it is? And the response that I think we need to have is pastoral. And I don't mean that you have to be a pastor, I just mean a caring pastoral response. And a caring pastoral response, I think, starts with love but always goes to truth. So it looks like I'm with you in this. I understand why this is scary. I love you so much. I will not leave you. Let's look at the Bible and see what God has to say about fear. And let's pray together to put that fear back where it belongs. And so we start with love and then we go to truth. I think for global fears, the world is coming to an end. 
I call it a prophetic response, which I think starts with truth and then goes to love, which is this is not the orientation that God wants you to have toward the world that we live in. He has called us to be compassionate, to be his hands and feet. That's what we're called to. But I understand the fear. This is a difficult time. I'm with you. And so we start with truth and then we go to love. So any response we have to fear has to include both truth and love. Let's talk about what fear does and then we'll figure out how those pastoral and prophetic responses look. So personal fears, what are the ramifications of living with these fears of sickness and accidents and failures and rejection? I'm gonna mention a couple. First, these fears harm relationships when we live in the midst of them all the time. So my daughter Hadley, whose wedding I was able to attend, uh, got married and they live in Denver and they both have good jobs and they graduated from college and I'm really proud of her and her husband. And um, she called me two weeks ago and said, hey, we're gonna live in a van. Yeah, the parents are like, what? What, you're going to be a vagrant? What are you saying to me? So she's like, we're gonna buy a sprinter van and drive it up there and then dad can help us make it into our house. Okay. Um, I had a little fear because it's like, we put you through college and you have a job and it seems like now you're gonna be homeless with your dog living in a parking lot. Um, I, these are my fears, but this is not what I'm gonna say to you. I am gonna say, let's talk about where you're parking this van because we don't really wanna bail you out for vagrancy. Um, let's just talk about the long-term plan. Let's talk about the dog living in the van with you. Um, we ask challenging questions, but ultimately what's gonna happen if we say, we, we don't want any part of this and we will not help you convert this van into your home? What's gonna happen? She's gonna get the van and somebody else is gonna help them make it into their home, right? And then I've lost something because I don't get to engage and be with them and continue to ask the challenging questions. I've tried to control her. I've tried to set the boundary around what my love is gonna cover. And then she goes and does whatever we want. And there's a brokenness there that's very difficult to heal. But this is what we do when we get fearful. We fear for our children, we fear for our partner, we fear for whoever, and we start to try to control and manipulate and it drives people away. So let's think about the teenager who comes to you and says, I, I just don't believe in your God anymore, mom and dad. That's a real fear because we fear for their life today and their life for eternity. And we try to hold our children in the kingdom by force. And this happened in the church I was growing up in. They would say, the parents would say, well, yes, you do believe it. And if you want to live here and if you want to live in this house, this is what you believe. And so it drove the doubt underground and it made the faith pretend. And it made the relationship based on something that wasn't real at all. I understand the fear, but I think we've all learned, and some of us the hard way, that trying to control other people who are making us fearful doesn't work. It creates distance, it violates trust. We're pushing the person away rather than drawing them in. Another way it harms relationship is that when we are fearful, we can't be present. So. During this wonderful July 4th weekend that I was shaking through, we didn't tell our kids anything because we wanted to have something more substantive to say. So we, we decided on July 4th to take them to a picnic and kayaking at Como Park. And you know that's just exactly what I wanted to do was go kayaking. Um, and so I was trying to be normal. Well, my son Connor, he loves, we both love to spar, and so we'll talk about you know, political or theological or philosophical issues, current events, and we have these arguments. We are arguments about definitions of words, books we've read. We just talk a lot and we push back and forth. And so his thought was, oh yay, we, mom and I can argue all day. 
And I was thinking, oh, I hope I live through this day. He doesn't know that. So he gets in the car and he starts into who knows what. And I wasn't being myself. I was like, and he was like, what is going on? So he tells me later, he was thinking, I don't understand why mom isn't engaging with me. So I'm going to push harder. So this is what he did. He doesn't know why I'm wacko. And so we ended up in this argument where he was saying to my husband, what is, what is going on with her? And he got really mad and it was ugly. And then, of course, a few days later when I was like, oh, I have cancer, <laughs> then he felt really bad. But he didn't know. He just thought, I'm not myself. And what's happening, it's normal to be fearful. Nobody finds a lump and they're like, yeah, let's go to Valley Fair. It's a fear-inducing thing. But the issue is that if you live there, and if I was still living there and saying, I have a nine, I have a 9% chance, and now I could also die of heart disease. If I live there, then I'm never going to be able to engage with my kids and my friends and my family in a way that's life-giving and joy-producing, because all I'm doing is worrying about my cancer or whatever it is for you. So yes, fear comes, but the reality is that if we live there, then we can't be present with the people around us. The second thing it does is it paralyzes us, which is just a corollary of the same thing. Steve Maraboli says the purpose of fear is to raise your awareness and not to stop your progress. So the awareness, I'm, I'm aware now, I have to go to the doctor. So that's progressing somewhere. Uh, the, the, so like a warning flare. Something needs to be done. You need to change direction. You need to be still and listen. You need to go see the doctor. And fear isn't meant to paralyze us. Fear motivates us toward something better. But... That's what it's supposed to do, but often it just shuts us down. It makes us, what I wanted to do on the 4th of July was lie in bed with a giant blanket over the top of me and have everyone leave me alone. I was becoming very quickly someone that I didn't recognize, because I'm always like, yeah, let's go kayaking, let's climb things, and let's run around, and I just did not want to do anything. I was completely shut down. And people around me didn't recognize me then, like my son. I'm just going to push harder, because I don't even know what this woman's doing. Um, but even since then, I've had my moments where I fall back into that place of fear and I become unrecognizable. So the ramifications of living with personal fear and not dealing with it are that we can harm relationships as we try to control and we can be paralyzed and our life comes to a stop. So how do we respond pastorally to this kind of fear? And I think the answer to that is quietly. So... I didn't have people come up to me saying, why are you so afraid of this, you idiot? You know what the Bible says about fear. What I had was people who spent the night in the hospital with me and apparently listened to me talk nonstop the entire night. I have no recollection. I'm sure it was profound. Um, the pastoral response is to be present and to say, I understand your fears. You're not alone. Life can be hard. But let's look at what the Bible has to say about those fears. Let's pray and commit these fears to God. So it has the truth and it has the love. The global kind of fear, what does this kind of fear do? I'm going to focus just on one thing that this kind of fear does to us. And in case you think I'm going to be political, I'm not. I'm going to be biblical, theological, challenging, prophetic. But we know, that especially at Woodland Hills, that our calling transcends politics. We look at what the Word of God says, and then we pursue that regardless of political divisions. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about that. Because here's what happens when we carry global fear. The world is coming to an end. The sky is falling. It takes away our ability as the body of Christ to be the hands and feet of Jesus. 
It makes us ineffective, it sets our calling aside, it turns our focus from the God of the universe who upholds all things to mere humans who are sinning and making mistakes and who are suffering and who are, and our, our focus on the call is just gone. So first I wanna remind us of our calling from scripture. In Isaiah 58, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? In Leviticus 19, the alien, which is also translated as stranger, who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. For you, Israel, were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. From Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and this is Jesus talking, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So this is the calling Take the poor homeless into your home. Welcome the alien as you do a citizen. Hey, all those people that everybody says you should hate, love them, forgive them. I have a clip from the movie Zootopia. Everybody loves Zootopia. Um, so we have a bunny and a fox, and they are natural enemies, right? Because a bunny is prey and a fox is predator. And they're trying to be friends, which is kind of a Woodland Hills thing, like let's reach out across the aisle. Um, Many of the traditional predatory animals in Zootopia, are, which is a city, are, have started to turn and they're predatory again. And so that's what this conversation is between the bunny and the fox. Oh, there's a them now. Christianity Today in February printed some statistics that are pretty disturbing. U.S. congregations are twice as likely to fear refugees as to help them. 24% of committed Christians, by their own definition, said they were unwilling to help a Syrian refugee. That's one in four. Two-thirds of white evangelicals, 67%, believe that America does not have a moral responsibility to help Syrian refugees. And folks, that's fear right there. Because we're... Humans are caring. We see people in extreme suffering. Our first response isn't, nope, don't care, not my responsibility. That's what Christians are saying. The Cato Institute, just to put this in context, say the odds of a fatal terror attack in the U.S. by a refugee are one in 3.64 billion annually. So let me just say that my chances of getting struck by lightning twice are one in nine million. And by the way, I have a 1 in 11 chance of getting cancer in the next 10 years. So I'm not going to waste my time worrying about 1 in 3.6 billion odds. It's not a place to put our fear. It does not make any sense. And let me tell you why it's really, really, really important as kingdom people to think differently about this. Because here's what's happening in Syria. The civil war there started in 2011 during what some of us remember it being called the Arab Spring. People took to the streets to protest in several countries about... Um, human rights violations, and in Syria in particular, the government sent out squads and they actually shot protesters in the streets while they were protesting. Over the past six years, it's become a mess involving the Syrian government, ISIS, Arab rebel groups, uh, opposition groups, and now Russia. Um, a ceasefire held through January and most of February of this year, and now the violence has begun again. In a supposed effort to fight the Islamic State, ISIS, the Russian 
Russian people are dropping bombs, but here's what's happening. Those bombs are falling on civilian targets, neighborhoods, apartment buildings, hospitals, schools. At times, as many as 200 air raids per day. Since 2011, a half a million people have been killed. 11 million people are on the run. Five million of those have fled the country and are living as refugees elsewhere. Six million are living in Syria as homeless people. 13.5 million additional people are in need of basics like food and water. Again, from Christianity Today, in the past decade, the U.S. has never received more than a fraction of 1% of the world's refugees annually. In 10 years, never more than a fraction of 1%. Because sometimes when we see the news, we think there's like a half a million refugees from Syria coming over the border every single day. And it's just not true. Again, not the place that our fear should be sitting. There's a documentary called The White Helmets, and it's on Netflix, it's 40 minutes long, it's worth your time, and it looks at this group of people who wear white helmets, thus the name, and they go out into bombed apartment buildings, houses, hospitals, schools, and they rescue people who are trapped in the rubble. And they are brave, and they are dying uh, fairly regularly because of their hard work. And so I want to take a look at this clip so that we understand what is actually happening right now in Syria. So when I think about the number nine that I live with, I can't compare it to the fear that my children and my friends and my family are going to be lying under a pile of rubble. It's good perspective. This is, how can this be political? I don't care what side of the aisle anybody sits on. We serve a king who sits over the whole thing, right? He has nothing to do with political parties. You cannot embrace politics at the expense of caring for those in need, of answering the call that is so clear through the Old and New Testaments. People are fleeing for their lives, people are trapped in buildings, people are being bombed in their neighborhoods, in their homes, and it's not political. It requires a response. It requires not fear. Why are we afraid of Syrian refugees? Wouldn't it be great for some Christians to join the primarily Muslim white helmets and rescue babies from collapsed buildings instead of saying, I am afraid of you. I will not help you. I have no responsibility to you. Everyone is not called to the same level of bravery. Not everyone will be a white helmet but everyone is called to compassion. The question is whether fear is keeping you from doing whatever you are called to do. Methodist pastor John Pavlovitz says, fear is a powerful drug. It's a fantastic political tactic, it's a wonderful manipulator, it's an effective motivator, but it's a really lousy religion. May more Christians in America come to believe that the sky is not falling because they know the one who holds up the sky. Amen. 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 So the prophetic response is loud, I think. The prophetic response to these global fears also acknowledges, yes, this is a fearful place, but it challenges it. It goes to scripture. 
God didn't have a tiny little quiet message for the prophets to Israel. He didn't say to Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah, hey, I have a little message when you have a minute, but don't get too upset. What he did was he sent them out with powerful messages like this one from Amos 2. The Lord says, the people of Israel have sinned again and again, so I will judge them. They sell into slavery those who have done no wrong. They trade needy people for a mere pair of sandals. And these are harsh words and they are true words, but I also believe they're loving words because what God is saying to his chosen nation of Israel that he chose to be a blessing to the world is, hey, you guys can do better than this. You are my people. I created the world. I put you as blessings to everybody and you are putting people in slavery and you are selling the needy for a pair of sandals and I love you too much to let you live in this icky, icky place. You can do better. I am with you. That's the prophetic response. It's a little bit scary and it's a little bit painful, but it's rooted in the love of God for his people. So we have to do something with fear. We have to do something with a personal fear that says, what if bad things happen to me? And the global fear that says, what, what if bad things happen to all of us? And they look different and they feel different, but really the Bible addresses every kind of fear and it gives us wisdom and advice for how to deal with them. We're called to live courageously in the power of Christ, not because everything's gonna turn out perfectly, but because this is not the end of the story. And in his sermon on depression, Greg talked about the importance of where you end the movie. So he also showed a video clip from Frozen and he said, what if you ended the movie where Elsa was still frozen? Not only would millions of children be traumatized, but that's a really, just a really sad ending and it's, it doesn't reflect how we believe life happens in the kingdom of God. If this applies to fear. Here was Greg's eloquent sentence about this. If the source of your joy is God and it goes on forever and ever, you can have a pervasive sense of joy in the midst of all the crap in the world. Our joy and our lack of fear does not depend on what's happening out here. If you're living in fear right now, if you're saying no to a life because of fear, you're not alone, first of all. Everybody here has been there or is there. If you're missing out on your calling because of fear, there's hope. And there's some specific things that I think we can do on our own and together. First of all, is to make a choice to think and live differently. And this sounds kind of obvious. Greg talked about how we have control over our thoughts though, and we have to work hard and have some disciplined activities to help us to reorient our thinking so that the first thing we think of in the morning is not what bad things can happen. This is what happened to me when my kids were getting their driver's licenses. I, I can only say that I, there must have been a lot of people dying in car accidents when I was younger because I have this sort of trauma about people driving. And so my kids, we lived in St. Paul and my kids would drive to Stillwater for school and every single day I was positive that they were gonna die in a car accident. Like literally, this is crazy making. And so I said, I need you to text me or call me every day when you get there so I know you're alive. Kind of extreme. I'm not kidding you though. And so for, this went on for five years, one or the other of them driving until we got through. And then um, like maybe two or three times in that whole time, they forgot. So I, I knew they had died in a car accident. And what a normal person or a Christian, you know, mature person would do is say, well, I'm sure they're fine and I'm not going to let this fear drive me today. And so... 
It's all right. But no, I got in the car and drove to Stillwater to make sure their car was in the parking lot. Just, I think, two times. What? So I have to fight this still. I mean, they're in their 20s. I can't have them calling me and saying, Mom, I'm going to drive to the grocery store. And then when they get to go, I'm at the grocery store. Now I'm driving home from the grocery store. Mom, now I'm at home. But now I'm going to drive over my friend's house. <laughs> this fear could be a full-time job. And so what I have to do is every time I start to have fear about my kids or about the state of the world, I try to name it and make the choice not to live by fear. In 2 Corinthians 10, this is something I have to claim. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive. And so this is my discipline, is every time I start to freak out about whatever, I have to say, I'm taking that captive. This is not going to control me. This is not going to define me. I have weapons for this war that are not merely human, and I am calling on that power so that I can set this aside. Name your fears. Say them out loud. Yes. Did you ever notice that when you say your fears out loud, just the act of saying them takes the power away? What if you're saying them out loud to the God of the universe, and he can really take the power away? Take them captive, don't let them hold you captive. Second, embrace the love that casts out fear. So if you see God as one who is on the verge of shaking his finger at you all the time about that station wagon, then you have not yet embraced that love that casts out fear. And some of you think, all I do is dent the station wagon. I'm not worthy of that level of love. That's for everybody else. And that's just not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. I preached here last time and I had boxes and one of them was labeled screw-ups and I convinced all of you over the course of a half hour that you all belonged in that box. Some of you were like, I'm jumping in right now. We all live in the box of screw-ups and that's the box that Jesus loves. It's the box that Jesus died for and I don't care how many station wagons you dent. You're in the box of screw-ups. I'm in the box of screw-ups. We all dented the station wagon. We've all been forgiven and we all get the unconditional love of Christ. Doesn't matter. Maybe you need to join a support group on Thursday nights. Maybe you need to see a counselor and those are great things. But in, the, in your head, at least start in your mind to tell yourself, I am worthy of that love because accepting that love is the first step toward casting out that fear. So first we need to get disciplined and say, I'm gonna think differently. And second, we need to embrace the love that casts out fear. And third, isn't it cool that there's 365 do not fears in the Bible? It's one a day. So just look at one a day for a year. And I promise you going back to that truth again and again and again will transform you from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. We are looking for an insurance policy both for our personal fears and our global fears. We are looking for a future in which we know that all of these horrible things we're afraid of do not happen. It's in the big print, it's in the small print, we sign it and we say, good, this is the insurance policy I want. However, that's not actually the insurance policy we have. We actually have a better one because the term of that insurance policy is this lifetime. The policy that we have is for eternity. And it's just a different kind of policy. It doesn't guarantee that nothing bad will happen but it guarantees that this moment and this life 
are not the end of the story. And it guarantees that we are never alone in the midst of a story. We have the God of the universe who holds up the sky, who's enforcing this policy. Whatever you're afraid of, don't let it rob you of the joy of this life because you forgot about that life to come. A lot of what we've looked at these past several weeks of the Overwhelmed series, I think really relate to fear. In shame, which we talked about the first week, a lot of it is fear that your sins and mistakes are gonna define you or that people are gonna find out the horrible things you've done and they won't love you anymore. And so there's fear and we hang on to that shame. Depression, depression can be rooted in fear. There's lots of causes of depression, but depression and anxiety, which is another word for fear, are often linked and they're often treated the same way. And when we live in a world that is so difficult and so painful, Depression is a place that some people go just to deal with the reality of the fears that face us every single day. We talked about unforgiveness. We're afraid to forgive others because we think we're giving away the farm. If I forgive you, I'm saying it's okay that you treated me that way. And so I'm afraid to do that. I'm afraid I'm letting go of too much and I'm not gonna. Or we can't receive forgiveness. Or we're afraid that we don't deserve forgiveness. And so there's fear there. And then last week, Greg talked about addiction. And people often turn to vices because of fear and anxiety. In this really scary and sometimes terrible world, if I can get a little extra dopamine, then I think I'll probably do that. So there's a reason that do not fear is said 365 times, and it's because it's a major problem in the human condition. But those of us in Christ are called to model a different human condition. I want to leave you with a little... Uh, I call it a hymn, you can decide for yourself. Whether you're afraid of cancer or money problems or Syrian refugees, this is really a call to get out there and have a life. Take a look. Woo! I live, here's the thing. I didn't tell you this part of the story, but since the cancer, I sprained both my ankles and broke one and I got cellulitis in my foot. Um, it was like I was being punked, my life. And when I get on the treadmill now, I'm training for a half marathon, I can only run on a treadmill right now because apparently I can't hurt myself, they think. Um, when I'm running on the treadmill really slowly and that song comes on my headphones, I'm like, I did it all, yeah, I'm singing along. And people are like, lady, you're running on a treadmill. To me, it's a big deal. And what's your big deal? What are you afraid of? What's holding you back? I'm almost sure I'm not going to go put on a white helmet and pull babies out of buildings, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live to the full so that if in five years my cancer comes back and I die, I don't look back and say, well, I spent the last five years being fearful. I'm going to live my life. And if I don't pull refugees out of buildings, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, every place I go and every chance I get, I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless. And I'm going to say, people of God, stand up. Don't be afraid of people who are different from you. We are called to a higher calling. Set politics aside and remember the kingdom that we are a part of and the God who is over that kingdom. He can remove all fear. He can send you into places where he cannot go with his hands and feet. Because you know what? We are his hands and feet. And so he sends us and he needs us and he calls us. And so today and tomorrow and the next day, go out and live everything. Broken bones, cancer, money problems, fears, whatever. Go out and live and be the hands and feet and the voice of Jesus. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations and especially today. Amen. Amen.
Be blessed and come up for prayer if you need it.